Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 96, which begins with Loki setting the Bifrost to Destructo mode and ends with Loki monologuing about his plan. Joining us on the show today, we have Dr. Arnold Blumberg, publisher, author, educator, pop culture and comics historian, and friendly neighborhood zombie expert. Uh, Arnold, so glad to have you with us. That's uh, quite a mouthful. How does one get started in a career like that? Uh, I don't know. Make all the right mistakes in life, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. I'm glad to be doing this. Awesome. Awesome. And, And for you, when did it all start? Where did the, especially with comic books, where did your love of comic books get started? It's pretty easy to track back. I just, I was always a reader from the moment I could pick something up. And I started with Harvey comics like Casper and Richie Rich, very quickly found Spidey super stories. And that was the way into the Marvel universe. And from there, it just escalated (laughs) and never looked back. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome well so glad we're gonna have you here we've got a lot of uh, a lot of comics relevant stuff to uh, ask your opinion on so we'll get into all that right after this we love having conversations about everything marvel with all of you so hop into our discord community and join us over there head to truestory.fm slash marvel movie minute and click on the discord link it's that easy We start out this minute with Loki, obviously, kind of, you know, he's taking on his plan, uh, and we're seeing Yggdrasil, every other time the Bifrost has fired off, we've seen kind of like the energy shape of it, but now we're actually seeing it taking shape uh, in kind of a solidified way. What's happening in this scene? I mean, that's a, it's a good question. It's, it's, I mean, my impression has always been that Loki is using his frost giant powers to somehow freeze it in place. Um, As I watched it this time, I noticed that there's kind of a blue cube, um, right? uh, One, he's now holding Gungnir. It's no longer in the, uh, in the ignition for the observatory, but there's like a blue glowing cube right at the, uh, essentially the, uh, on top of the ignition switch. And that makes me think that he has basically kind of waved in and conjured the casket of ancient winters to be sitting right on top of it so as kind of that that bifrost energy blasts out in that shape of that the tree it's actually now freezing it all and that's uh, it's kind of my impression of it i mean it's it's all like you know you're looking at frames <laughs> to see this stuff but that's kind of what my impression is uh, as he's doing this it's also interesting too by the way that like at this point he, he knows where he comes from, you know, that we have the background. He wants to prove his worthiness. And he is essentially using the very abilities that come from the background that that basically cursed him to be what he is to destroy his own people, essentially, to destroy that that past. It's it's a weird um twisty turny mix of things going on that I think also is a great early signpost to how complex a character like Loki can be Very and much so. how great Hiddleston can be in the part. Well, and that, that gets to one of my favorite questions because all throughout this season, we've been asking sort of what is Loki thinking at what point is, you know, the great trickster planning, you know, playing chess five moves ahead. And at what point is he just responding? 
Obviously, he has tried to kill Thor. It hasn't worked. Thor has come back to his power and is now quite literally like rushing towards him. Do you think this was always Loki's plan? Kill Thor and then kind of, you know, destroy Jotunheim? Or is this is this plan B now that Loki is back, now that Thor is back? Based on what he was saying when he was confronting Laufey uh, in in kind of Odin's chambers, when he killed Laufey, it really did sound like this was his plan. Like he was going, regardless of whether Thor was around or not, he was going to um, invite Laufey here to kill him so that it looked like they were invading and that he basically saved the day. And, uh, you know, even though, <laughs> I don't know, there's still the question about what, uh, what Frigga had to say after after uh, Thor and and uh, Loki had that confrontation over Odin's uh, sleeping body, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the impression is that you know, which I mean, he'll say here in a minute that he's kind of wanting to uh, kind of create create this situation where he has saved the day. And and by destroying Jotunheim, that's just kind of the next step. He's killed Laufey, the invading king, and now he's going to destroy their planet. At least that's the way that it seemed to me. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me, too. I mean, it, it seems like that's the idea. And it follows a pattern that, uh, I mean, for me, it instantly brings to mind things like it, if anybody out there is like a Doctor Who fan, I, I think of like his arch enemy, the Master. There's mm. a Sherlock Holmes Moriarty kind of thing. There's, there's always this idea, too, with, with your villainous character, when they're not out and out a monster, which, of course, Loki is not, um, and, and like we were saying, has a lot of potential there. There's always that element of this incredibly elaborate but well-thought-out plan that then, of course, naturally fails to play out because the hero is going to win the day at the end. But it seems like this is the path he's on, basically. And... Of course, we know things are not going to work out that way, but this is what he always had in mind. He's a thinker, and he had this plan, and we're basically at the point now where everything is playing out, but it's basically the climactic moments here of the whole thing as the whole plot turns on this event. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting, especially the way you said it, that he's using the the sort of powers and technology that he has as a Jotun himself, because... What he's trying to do, as he, as he, you know, as he said to his mother and to his father, he's trying to do what Thor would have, you know, he, you know, he wants to out Thor Thor on some level. If he wants to show that he can be the great protector for Asgard and he's the one who can keep his father safe from the threat that he caused, but, you know, putting that part aside. So yeah, I mean, the <laughs> irony is so deep here that he's basically trying to out Thor Thor while using all that power that he has because he's a Jotun. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting tool that he's chosen to do it with, right? I mean, the whole idea of using the Bifrost essentially as a weapon, um, which I mean, it's it's an interesting element that they've built in. I don't know, uh, uh, Arnold. Maybe you have a better sense of of the Bifrost and its usages in the comics, but it's it i don't know I, I like even through the the earlier parts of the film i'm trying to remember where was there a lot of talk um about them saying that you know the bifrost could be used as a weapon you know i i feel like it's come up but it's never really uh kind of been that direct until this moment when he's just like flip the on switch it's like it's like yeah full power not full power it's like you know one of those sorts of moments 
nothing occurs to me, but but uh, I will say, and it's a good it's a good point, I guess, to get out the in my first episode here is that Thor was always one of my least favorite corners of the Marvel universe. Mm. It's one of the areas where, when I was when I was reading everything, and there was that point certainly by the by the early to mid eighties where I was literally like subscribing to and reading everything, even Thor. But it was like if it was Thor or cosmic related. It went to the side for me. I, I, Spider Man was my main guy and a lot of that. So I, I absorbed a lot of that stuff and yet never like weighed it as important in the same vein as some of the other things. So I'm sure there are people that are far, far more, uh, um, steeped in the Thor history that would know, but it doesn't strike me. Of course, the other thing too is the movies have very much. And, and I think this is a wonderful thing, have have picked and chose different things throughout the history of Marvel and some things they've adapted very directly and used the way they were used in the comics. And in some ways they said, look, we're only going to take the name or the general idea, but we have a way to use it. So this whole function of the Bifrost in this, it doesn't strike me as quite the same. But then again, this is not the rainbow bridge we saw in the comics either. And <laughs> I think it's a beautiful design in this movie. It's one of yeah. the things I really think is exceptional. It's like all of a sudden, here's something that really looks like what a real version of that bridge would look like physically. Yeah. It's great. And it just doesn't look like a rainbow ribbon, you know? And so <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on here that I feel like is the movie and, and Brana and the team coming up with something that makes this interesting and makes it function for the plot. It might not necessarily fit what the Bifrost was. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm a little torn on the whole idea of the Bifrost basically being used as like a Star Wars super laser that's just mm. shooting through, you know, <laughs> across the realms to basically destroy a planet from far away. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I get it. It's it's energy, and they use it to travel. So, sure, I guess if you use energy in a different way, it could potentially destroy. And so, I can see where they would come up with that idea. Uh, it just strikes me as kind of a, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I I guess I see what they were doing here, and it, and in context of the story, it works. It just ends up feeling like now we'll turn on the giants, the giant uh, space laser, and we'll destroy them. You know. But then that's also, and not just in this series, but certainly everywhere in an era, that unfortunately is one of these incredibly familiar and now overused tropes that everybody's getting tired of, which is every climactic sequence has the giant blue beam in the sky, either yeah. coming down from the sky or going up to the sky. Yeah. That's the one variation you get. Where's the beam coming from? But <laughs> right. there's always going to be a blue beam. Yeah. And, and so that's, you can see already they're falling into that. With this kind of thing. in Star Wars, it's a green beam. If they just stuck to green, everything would be better. But <laughs> no, I, I I hear what you're saying, and I um, I, to me, Andy, the sort of the questioning of the space physics is is that horse is way out of the barn already. To oh, me, sure, sure. But I, I, here's why it works for me, especially that hasn't been discussed. And, and this may be me reading way too much into it because I love the philosophy of all of this. You know, Asgard is a nation of warriors. This is a, a planet of, of warrior people who believe in sort of the honor of single combat and swords and shields and all this. And, you know, we heard Sif talk about, you know, that at least if she dies in noble combat, you know, her, her story will be sung on for generations. 
And to me, Loki is the person coming. Loki is kind of the General Sherman or the General Patton coming along being like, who cares about honorable combat? I just want to win. War is hell. And and in some level, like him, I I kind of believe that no one in Asgard, it would ever occur to them that you could just destroy the whole planet because that's not honorable combat. That's not how you win. And Loki is the one who's able to come along and say, that's all ridiculous. If we want to win, let's just win. And I'm I, I'm not saying like I'm defending him. I, I think the, the critique that he's making of Thor and all the rest of them of like that there can be anything as noble as combat. It, I, I agree with him there. Him deciding to therefore go to genocide. OK, let's I'm not with you there. But I, I guess to me, that's what I see is here is that he's doing this because it would never occur to any of the rest of them because he never bought into this idea of if you want to win, it has to be in this honorable way. I agree with you. And I also think what you're pointing out is, and again, I also agree that you know you wouldn't necessarily go with what Loki's argument is. Yeah. <laughs> but what he's pointing out here is just the utter hypocrisy exactly. of glorifying war. It's like if you're going to try to kill to win, do it. You're not you're not gonna be able to get anywhere with this like, you know, faux honor and and glory to all of it. And that really takes all that down. And I think it's another great example of why Brana is a great choice to like start off these characters because all of it is just so just dripping with Shakespearean meaning and yeah, it, yeah. it fits perfectly for for his kind of sensibilities and he knows how to tell that kind of story. It reminds me of uh... Not to go to a very controversial set of media, but, you know, in Game of Thrones, where you have early on this fight between a, a noble knight and Bronn the sellsword, and Bronn wins by fighting completely dishonorably. And and when someone accuses him, you fought dishonorably, and he just points to the dead knight and said, well, he fought honorably. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, that, it's that hypocrisy <laughs> that Loki's pointing out that is just great here. Yeah, I wrote in my notes that he's the one who would be using drone technology, right? I mean, that's kind of what yeah. it is. It's just like, you know, I, why go over there if I can just turn this on and destroy it? One thing also I noticed is that, uh, pulling it back to more the filmmaking side of it, the way Loki is shot, it, there's... They, they they make it in such a way that like the energy and and the technology and what he's wearing all has this kind of like blue grayish tint and like other than his face every shot that he's in is almost monochromatic which I just thought was so interesting a way of portraying him as opposed to Thor who's this bright red and all the colors of the the rainbow bridge behind him I think that comes which brilliantly from the fact that he froze the Bifrost right and and basically he turned this observatory which has always been this beautiful warm golden glow and the way that it lights up when it's safely transporting people um, to this very blue uh, kind of cold chamber now. And and yeah, I mean, it absolutely is incredibly powerful how it's essentially, you know, lost its warmth and, and he is just this cold figure in it. I, I love the way it looks. Some great stuff in this, like just in space of this one minute that again uh, speaks to really nice choices in terms of direction and cinematography and the design of the shots, like like you're saying, the, the monochromatic approach. I also really love that sort of Dutch angle, twisty, turny shot back to Earth with that's such a great... I mean, like, you know, there's some things that are just like all part of film grammar. And, you know, we're obviously, we're in the climactic moments here. You got to tie everything back to your characters in the other location. You know, everything's, the stakes are high for everybody. It's just such a beautiful shot and and keeps you really revved up. Like things are off kilter down on earth. And also the shift in color from where we are, you know, in the Bifrost 
as well is just really nice. I just liked that that shot this time and thought this they're really thinking about everything, the color choices, the camera angles. It's just really nice work. Yeah, and often as you're building that climax, you need a reaction shot from everyone. And here showing like this is a multi multi-realm, multi-dimensional reaction shot that wherever you are you're seeing some part of the Bifrost coming apart like this. I That was a question that I had because it's, I mean, it's interesting that we see that. I mean, Jotunheim, we, we, we cut to Jotunheim and yeah, we see it being destroyed. We see what looks like the rest of Utgard Hall completely obliterated. Jotun's running and dying. A little sad there's no Jotun beast in there, but it is what it is. But it is interesting how when we go to Earth, I mean, it is kind of, I mean, it's like this dark foreboding cloud overhead that's kind of flashing the Bifrost rainbow colors in it. It it made me wonder, is is this happening in every realm now? Like, is this what happens when the Bifrost is used in this malicious sort of way, you know, where you you kind of leave it on, where actually it's, I mean, it might not be affecting all the realms, but it's visible in all the realms. It might have very well been that if this were a little further along in the MCU, we might have gotten quick cuts over to a few other places we'd become familiar with at that point. Mm. Now it's so early days, there's no reason or or justification for that that would work for the audience, but it could have been. And that would have been interesting because then that would confirm for you what you're saying. It's like, yeah, this is reaching to all the different places. Yeah, right. Right. That would be interesting. Going back just one second, because I'm hoping as a comic book guy, you might know more about this. So we get the scene where, like, Thor leaps at him with a hammer and Loki shoots him with his staff. And my qu- he has Gungnir because he's the king. Yeah. But Thor is back now. Thor is now officially back in the line of succession. And we've established in this world that all these magical items seem to kind of know who is supposed to use them when. So I was kind of wondering, like, what is it just for plot reasons? It helps him to still have this magic staff that can shoot laser bolts. Is there a reason why, even though Thor's back, he would still be able to wield that power because he is still officially king until someone officially says no Thor instead? What what do you think of how that's supposed to work? Well, in one way, that that argument you just made sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And on the other hand, I would just always feel like with a character like Loki, it's just one of those great get out of jail free cards with that kind of character. Mm. He's a trickster. He's a magician. He's, he's a deceitful figure. And therefore the rules don't apply to him whenever he doesn't need them to basically. I mean, on the one hand, in a meta way, that's what's happening with a movie. Like if you, if you need something to work for your plot, you can you can choose whatever you want to do. I think with a character like Loki, there's very much the idea that, you know, everything's on the table. If he can manipulate something to his needs, yeah. he can find a way. And in, in fact, some there some of the only things he can't seem to overcome eventually come as a result of Thor himself for their relationship and you know it's a little ways off. But um but yeah, I mean, I think that partly what you suggested is a good way of looking at it, but also there's just that idea that Loki can accomplish extraordinary and rule-breaking things, especially when he's at his most desperate. And that that tracks, because even in the mythology, which is something I, I've been loving to compare this to, Loki is often, uh, not that they use this language, but he's the one who can find the loophole. Mm. You know, he's always the one who can find the exact wording of the command Odin or someone else has given down and find a way to sort of squirrel around it. So, yeah, if anyone could find a way to keep using the staff, it would be him. And I mean, you know, I mean, I, they have established by this point that Gungnir 
it's n- unlike the comics. I mean, it, it seems to go with the role rather than Odin. Like in the comics, it's just Odin's, and it's like nobody else ever uses Gungnir. But here, it's they've they've rewritten it where it's like it's a kingly item, and so as long as you're king, you get to wield it. Right. So yeah. So we get into the end of this minute, and Thor says, "Why have you done this?" And Loki goes into this monologue, and he's explaining that you know he wants to prove to father that I'm a worthy son. Uh, I will have saved, you know, he's, he's explaining I will have saved his life. I will have destroyed all the monsters. I will be the true heir to. Now we don't know what he means. We can probably guess. We'll find out tomorrow. Um, but yeah, what do you what do you think of this monologue from him? It's on the one hand, it is. You know, it's an MCU movie, so the villain has to give a monologue. But I, to me, there's so much happening here. It's one of those cases also where, I mean, I, I don't particularly uh, criticize it. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you, you have to do these kind of things in these kind of movies. And there's basic, basic plot stuff, especially for people in the audience who may not be as invested. You need to lay things out. And I don't criticize it particularly because also you're dealing with Hiddleston, who already right out of the gate is an exceptional actor to to sell this kind of stuff. But it's also that kind of thing where you really pay attention. It's like, look, none of these things necessarily really need to be stated between these two guys. You know, they they know their relationship. They know their history. A lot of these kind of things in a real context, maybe they wouldn't quite be spoken, you know, as a monologue or, you know, because you'd have a shorthand. You know what they're talking about. But we need to lay all these things out for everybody in the audience. These are the stakes. This is where he's coming from. This is what it is. And I think given all of that, it's it's excellent because Hiddleston is great. Yeah. And uh, we'll see as we continue to uh, further evidence of, of him being the right person for the job, essentially, which seems to be a recurring pattern in the MCU movies anyway, especially in the early days. A lot of right people for the jobs, which is why this, I think, took off the way it did. Well, especially in this film, which, you know, I think more, maybe not more so, but there are plenty of characters that have continued in different paths in the MCU that kind of seemed to have come from this film. You know, Darcy and and Eric, both of them, um, of course, you know, Hawkeye and Agent Sitwell make their first appearances here. Uh, it, it's just interesting how it, you know, th- they seemed to have found a way to kind of really tap into some of these characters in the film. Yeah. And the one thing I want to say about the monologue is that, to me, what I love about it so much is that, of course, we know he's not completely being honest, especially not with himself. And that, you know, at the start of the movie, he didn't want to destroy Jotun. And he he may believe that it's what will help keep Asgard safe. And he certainly may believe that it's what his father. But it's also, as you were saying at the beginning of this, Arnold, like, it's also he is himself a Jotun. He needs to, if he can be the one to destroy it. Now, no one has to worry that he's one of them, and no one can ever question his 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 loyalty again. You know, and that like that secret that Thor doesn't know yet, but he knows, I just give so much more weight to what he's saying. It's interesting how it changed slightly from the script into what it is now. And I really, I, I, I don't know, I think I am really happy with the way that they found to change this. Because in the script, uh, when Thor says, why have you done this? Uh, Loki's response is to do what father never could to destroy their kind forever. When he awakens, he'll see the wisdom of what I've done. And I think the way that he says it now to prove to father that I am a worthy son, when he awakes, I will have saved his life. I will destroy that race of monsters and I'll be true heir. It's interesting. Just, I mean, it's very subtle, but there's a shift in there where it goes from, from not 
worrying about being worthy for his father. It's like he's not looking at how his is his father seeing him. It's almost like he's trying to prove to or like he's trying to show that his dad never could do this stuff. Like he's almost better than his dad. And and finally, by going through with this, he will have shown his father, oh, you're right. You were right all along. And so it's an interesting shift, and I'm really glad they shifted it to really focus on that worthiness aspect um, in the film. I, I think that, well, one, it ties into Thor so much and his journey in the film, but I also just, I think that it connects so much to the story of, of fathers and sons that we have here. Yeah, especially since he has literally just killed his, you know, his. He, you've just killed your bio father. That means you're definitely throwing in with your adoptive father, you know, 100%. Uh-huh. So. Right. He, right. Ha- he has to solidify that. Well, there's so much more we're going to get to discuss, uh, find out this mystery of what he wants to be heir to. Uh, but in the meantime, Arnold, for people who are hearing you for the first time and want to find out more, uh, normally people would just say, well, I just do this one podcast, but there's so much you're doing. Um, where can people find more of uh, your writings and thoughts out in the world? Well, you can find me most of the time on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead, which is uh, a name that came up because of all the work I do with uh, zombie stuff. And my publishing company is ATV Publishing, and uh, we have a podcast that my wife and I do where we are watching horror, science fiction, and all sorts of things at ghoulsinthehouse.com. Nice. Sounds good. We'll definitely check that out. To our fans, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, check out all the other great things happening at thenextreel.com. Uh, thank you to Andy for all your work helping put this together. And to all of you listening, thank you so much. Have a great day. Until next time, true believers. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. Andy Nelson.